everybody. I'm Pastor Joe here at the church. I'm over the Shift Garage car ministry, and I've got some things I want to share with you this morning, but before I do that, I want to congratulate everybody in this room on an accomplishment, your perfect church attendance in 2016. Good job, everybody. Well done. I'm proud of you. You didn't even know you were working on this. If you were looking for a New Year's resolution and you don't have anything yet, you're already started on this, you're already halfway there, people that aren't coming today, they're already out for the game, right? This is you guys. So you're already started on this one. Now don't mess up, okay? Next week is the first sermon in the Be Brave series. I want you to be here for that because you've got to keep your perfect record going. So congratulations, everybody, on that. Um, I'm a pastor's son. Uh, My dad was a pastor from just before I was born. He's still a pastor today. And in our house, we didn't have this month that we're in right now. We didn't have January. We had stewardship month. Our calendar went stewardship month, February, March, April. I'm going to guess that was just me in this room. I'm going to guess that wasn't everybody. But the reason why we had stewardship month is because my dad always preaches on stewardship month for the entire month of January. So the first week will be stewardship of money, second will be stewardship of time, and he moves on like that. And I was actually there for Christmas, and I heard him discussing his stewardship sermon for today. So he's still doing this. So that was my raising, my upbringing. It just seems like that's what you should talk about in January. So I want to talk to you about kind of a form of stewardship. I wanted to talk to you about something... Hopefully, when you talk to people about something, it's about something that you're educated in, that you know what you're talking about. I wanted to talk to you about something that has to do with what I do for a living. I'm actually under the next steps department in this church, and then I'm under a smaller subjection called the outreach department, and our job is to help people in need in the community. So I wanted to talk to you about poverty and how and if we can affect poverty, and if we can affect poverty, Can we do it in a long-lasting way and not just an immediate one? That's what I'm hoping to look at. So whenever we're looking at a topic and deciding what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to interact with it, I like to start with Scripture. I have a lot of people I run across that like to exhaust every other option before they look at Scripture, but I find it's more efficient to just start with Scripture and see how that plays out. So let's do that. First is in Matthew we're going to establish whether we should help the poor or not. What do you think the Bible says about that? The first one says, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. The next scripture is in Proverbs. It says, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord 
and he will repay you. There's an exclamation point on that one. Then the next one says, there will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor. Okay, well that sounded pretty clear cut. That sounded uh, obvious. We're supposed to help the poor. I guess we could end there and just go home. But you guys are already here. The Packers aren't beating the Vikings until later, so... um, Plus, I'm just not the kind of guy to leave it simple. So let's mess things up a little bit. In 2 Thessalonians, it says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they received from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. Now that's a problem they only had in the Old Testament. That's not really something we deal with today. But people apparently used to meddle in people's business. It was a big problem. Says we command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. Now that sounds different, doesn't it? The first few verses said, "Give to the poor." You're helping Jesus when you help the poor. You should help them. It's what you're supposed to do. But that scripture kind of implied if you're poor, it's partially your responsibility to get out of that situation. So did the Bible just contradict itself? I don't think so. I'm going to lay out this morning what I hope will turn into um, showing you a concept where mercy and justice kind of mesh to fix this problem of poverty because it's a slightly complicated problem and it takes mercy and justice to fix that problem. I've got one more scripture for you and then I'll lay off so much scripture. This is one of my favorites. It's in Leviticus 19. If you know anything about your Bible, you know that nobody has a favorite scripture in Leviticus anything. Because it's the rules, it's a pretty dry read, but I like this one, we're gonna use it. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines, and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. This is Leviticus. This is where the rules are made. This is how God wants us to interact with problems. So if we leave the grain and grapes in the field, that implies the poor and the foreigner are going to have to go into the field themselves and go get those things. They have some responsibility on their part. So what I want to show you this morning is that the irrational generosity that we talk about, one of the core values of this church, irrational generosity is not irresponsible generosity. I think when we hear irrational, we think, well, it's not rational. It's just looks like a guy driving around throwing money out the windows of his car, just making it rain everywhere. But that's not what we're talking about. There's a responsible and, and laid out plan of how to do this properly. So the first thing we have to look at when we're deciding how to help the needy is determining who are the needy, who really need help, and who would just like something free if we're going to hand it to them. Um, 
I used to visit Seattle quite a bit when I lived back in Montana, and I read a newspaper article there one time about three gentlemen that ran a professional beggar ring. If you don't know what that is, they got dirty clothes, they grew long scruffy beards, and they put dirt on their face, and they went out in the corner and shook a cup for the day. But you wouldn't want to do that all day, so there were three of them, and they took shifts. And they were often spotted around the corner, they'd get out of the vehicle and switch people. And the vehicle they would get out of was a BMW 7 Series, which if you know your Beamers, that's about a $120,000 car. It's a pretty nice set of wheels. Also, when I used to visit Seattle, the poverty in Seattle is insane. I can't even tell you, you would, no exaggeration, you would walk around the corner and there would be 50 people with backpacks up against a a brick wall, they're just living on the streets, and they are not shy about coming up and asking you for money. Well, this is true, but what I would tell them is, I don't carry cash, I'm all plastic, I don't have any way to give you money right now. Well, in researching for this talk today, I ran across a newspaper article of a gentleman that got a square reader for his smartphone. So... <laughs> When you say that, he now goes, well, I accept Visa, MasterCard, American Express. I can, we can fix that problem right here. You gotta give him credit. I mean, that's pretty good. So that excuse is no longer valid. Now, you might not see it at your kid's vocational handouts, but professional beggar is a job. There are people out there that do this for a living. So how do we deal with that? Well, before I close this morning, I'm gonna give you an answer to the question do we give money to the person on the corner with the cardboard sign? Has anybody ever struggled with that before? What am I supposed to do? Do I give them money? Do I not give them money? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. The week of Christmas, I saw at least three people in Rapid City on the corner with the cardboard sign. So I know it's something that we deal with and we have around us. But before that, I want to get into the main part of the talk today about mercy versus justice, how we're supposed to deal with all of that, the earned gift versus the free reward, that whole thing. But one of the things that I think I want to shed some light on today is do we have unintended consequences when we try to help the poor? Can we help the poor in a way that makes us feel good and them feel grateful, but we've actually done more damage than we did good? Is that possible? And are we doing it without even realizing it? The consequence that I'm talking about is dignity. Are we robbing someone of their dignity when we do this? I think irresponsible generosity doesn't, but irresponsible generosity can. So let's go over a theoretical scenario, and we don't have to act like this is super theoretical. This happens all the time. We've got a low-income apartment complex. It's not a great-looking place. Everybody inside this apartment complex is low-income. There's a church around the corner, Middle class folks, upper, lower, middle class, hardworking American people, they go to church, they want to do good, and they've decided to buy Christmas presents for all the people in the low-income apartment. So they get gifts, they wrap them up all fancy, and they take them, they ring on the doorbell, and they walk in, they're feeling great about themselves. The kids are jumping up and down. I don't know what your kids did for Christmas. Mine tore the house all apart, which is what kids are supposed to do on Christmas. And these kids even more so, because they weren't sure they were going to get a Christmas, and now they're going to get the best Christmas they've ever had. So we've got the people bringing in the presents, they feel great. They put their lives on pause, they could be doing anything with their time right now, but they're doing church work, they're doing God's work here, they're helping the poor, they're doing what they're supposed to. And the kids 
obviously think this is a great thing. It's fantastic. So this is a good situation, right? But are there unintended consequences to what just happened? I want us to think about the dad a little bit in the situation. Dad has a job. He works. And by whatever thin margin this may be by, they don't live on the street. They live in an apartment. Their bills are paid. They're doing what they're supposed to do. But the paycheck-to-paycheck gig when Christmas rolls around just doesn't have any money for big, extravagant Christmas gifts, really any Christmas gifts. Well, in a way, when we brought in these gifts, we kind of knocked Dad off of his pedestal of the family provider, the spiritual leader of the household, and he doesn't feel great about himself anymore. He had that, that in his spirit, that sense of fulfillment and accomplishment, and now we've kind of knocked that off a little bit. Mom also has some new issues to deal with because we've just taught her kids that great things come from other people, not mom and dad, and you don't have to work for them, they're free. So, did we help this family or did we feel great about ourselves for helping, but we actually hurt them in the long run? Now, I know you're saying, Pastor Joe, I don't know if you saw the announcements, but we did a bunch of Christmas gift thing for people. This is kind of awkward right now. There's some subtle differences that I think make all the difference in the world. Those gifts were actually for the children of our incarcerated church members that can't go out and earn a living for their family, and they actually say that they're from dad or mom, whoever's in prison. I think in that way, we actually help instead of hurt. I don't want that to be awkward for you. But it's a little bit different. I was laid off in 2008, and I'm quick to tell you that had nothing to do with my job performance. I'll get to that in a minute. Of course I would be. I had a job where I inspected field reports for natural gas well sites. What that means is I sat in front of a computer, and I looked at CAD drawings, and then I had a physical copy, and I had a highlighter and a red pen, and I marked errors. I don't mean to brag, but this is a job that I had in the past. Um, I actually liked that job. My OCD came in really handy, made me awesome at it because I could spot problems. You could listen to Pandora all day and it paid decent. I actually really liked the job. But this company, when the price per barrel of oil fell below a certain dollar amount, they laid off a certain amount of people. And it wasn't based on job performance, it was based on seniority. So last in, first out kind of a thing. And I'd been there for eight months. I was one of the last in. And so when the first round of layoffs came, I was one of the first out. So they called me into the office and explained that I didn't have a job anymore. They told me how unemployment worked because I had no idea. I was 23, and my young wife had had our first child just months before. It still amazes me when I think about that, how quickly the feelings swept over me. I was shocked for a few hours. If I remember right, I drove around for quite a while before I went back to bestow this wonderful news on my bride. But then I went home and told her, and the feelings of failure and inadequacy just swept over. I'm supposed to be the provider. I'm the man of the house. I've got a wife and a kid. We're playing house, and it's working. We're not living at home. We're doing this on our own. And now I I don't have that. My identity was swept up in my job, and when that was taken from me, I didn't, it felt awful. Well, I don't want anybody to feel that, and I certainly don't want to contribute to that feeling in someone else. So we need to find a better way to help the needy. Let's look at another scripture here. 
that'll show us how to help in a more sustainable way. In Acts 3, it says, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man, lame from birth, was being carried in. Each day, he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. Now you're saying, Pastor Joe, that sounds awesome. But unfortunately, I don't have the ability to help people out of their wheelchair and make them walk again. And I sympathize because I don't either. So take this lesson from it instead. Oftentimes, when people are asking us for money, that's not the root problem that they actually have. They have something else that needs taken care of. This next one is a point that I really want to get across this morning. I cannot be more emphatic about getting this point across. People need to work for a living. Not, I think it would be great if people did. Not, I personally think people should. People need to work for a living, to fulfill their spirit, to do what they were supposed to do. We counsel people at this church every month or even every week that have gotten into trouble because they weren't doing what they were supposed to. They weren't busy with the things they were supposed to be busy with, and so they had plenty of time to find trouble and get into it. The old adage, idle hands are the devil's workshop, is true. There's a reason why somebody said that. It's a problem. I want to show you a short scripture from the Garden of Eden. This is God's perfect plan for man. It says, this is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Then we skip down in that same chapter, and it says, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. I think a lot of times we think, well, the reason we have to work is because some people ate an apple a long time ago, and mankind fell into sin, and so we have to work now. But that's not true. This was before the fall. This was God's perfect plan for man, included man working. So that means to me, there is a part of our spirit that is fulfilled when we work. I think there's a hole in you that can only be fulfilled with that sense of accomplishment, that feeling. I still remember the first time I got that feeling and understood what it was. I was 14 years old. My dad was pastoring a church in Kansas City. And dad wanted me to trim some trees in the middle of summer. And again, I was 14. It was summer. There were some things I would have rather been doing than trimming these trees. But he gave me a big handsaw. I didn't even get a cool tool to do it with. But he showed me if you put the big branch on the bottom and stack all the other ones on top, you can put a chain around the big one. And when you drag it away with the lawnmower, they won't fall off. He kind of showed me how to do it. Now keep in mind, dad had something else to do. Dad was going somewhere else. This was a project for me to do. Well, it was hot. I don't know if you've ever been in Kansas City in the summer. It was warm. 
Equipment broke through no operator error. I don't know why. Stuff just breaks sometimes. Things didn't go the way it was really supposed to. And I just was not really interested in the project. But at the end of the day, and it was the end of the day when I was done with this, my mom brought me a cold drink and my dad told me what a good job I had done and it, it did look pretty good, I'm going to be honest with you. And I had this feeling that I had never really felt before welled up inside of me and I could look at those trees and go, those did not look good this morning and now they look great and I did that. With these, I accomplished that and made something better than it was before and it felt great. It was that feeling that then helped me get out of bed when I was going to college to be a pastor and I was living in Tulsa mowing lawns and it was 107 in Tulsa and you're covered in dust, your pores can't breathe, it's miserable. And then I moved to Gillette to pastor a small church and they couldn't pay me much, I had to work. I worked at a place where we were building a coal-fired power plant and it was well below zero with huge winds. We were in a building, we hadn't built the walls yet. I'm standing on concrete and steel-toed boots and I'm thinking, if I pull that boot off right now, I know that big toe's black from frostbite. It's gone. I know I've lost that toe. But I got out of bed every morning to go do that because of that sense of accomplishment. When what I did for a living wasn't God's plan for my life yet, that feeling kept me going. If you've got kids at home, please instill that into them. That's a huge gift you can give to them. If you've served at Easter or Christmas Eve or on the weekends, We've done a big project and you guys have been a part of it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That feeling is amazing and you can only get it by serving or working hard and paying rent and your bills and having that accomplishment of having done that. Well, when we give somebody a handout, not only do we not build that part of their spirit, we actually rob them of that part of their spirit. We're actually giving them something for free that they had nothing to accomplish and we're actually hurting more than we're helping, I think. The other problem with handouts, and this is a, a good little tidbit of information, they almost never work. I find that one of two things happens. Either they're ashamed that they had to ask, we rob them of their dignity by giving them a handout, and they will never ask for help again, even if they need it very badly. Or the opposite is achieved. We create a welfare state and they realize they can get something for free, and they never stop asking for things. But the root problem is not actually solved. We don't actually fix anything. So it takes more than just a handout to fix the problem. So why do we so often still give handouts? I think it's because it's easier. It's a lot easier. The explanation, I got laid off from work and my daughter had some medical bills and then we spent all of our money on rent and gas and now we need groceries and we don't have any money to pay for that doesn't fit on a cardboard sign, not a standard size one anyway. But need money does, and that's why you've seen that sign before. On our part, it's way easier just to hand some dollar bills out the window. In fact, if you've got power windows and you time the light just right, you can just go down a couple inches, leave the door locked, pass it out. It's really easy to just give a few dollar bills out the window. Actually helping people, though, getting involved in their lives, getting in their mess and wading through it with them and figuring out the root problem and offering a sustainable solution to it is not easy. It's messy and it's hard. But when we empower people to help themselves out of their situation, a lot of things are different from what I described before. 
First of all, they're not robbed of their dignity. They retain all the dignity they had and maybe build some more from helping themselves out of the situation. Also, our relationship changes. A lot of times when we give a handout, the person in the good situation, and this is unspoken, becomes superior, and the person that took the handout becomes inferior. And I don't think that's what God wants for us at all. But when we help them through their situation and they help us help themselves, then it looks a lot different. I think we look a lot more like equals. I think at worst, it looks like an employer-employee situation. If you work for someone, that employer had a job and they shared it with you. If you help someone help themselves, you had an opportunity and you shared it with them. It looks much better, much more, I think, the way God would want it to look. I firmly believe that's a better model. So what are we doing at Fountain Springs and Shift specifically to make sure we're doing that right? Well, I'm going to tell you, but before I do, I'm going to tell you whether or not you should give money to the guy on the corner with the cardboard sign. And not all of you are going to love this answer. I know that going into it. Here's my answer. Don't give them money just because. If you think it's your Christian duty to give them money and then it's between God and them how they spend that money, then don't. Because I think you could do more harm than good. In fact, I would say, unless the Holy Spirit specifically and firmly convicts you to give that person money, and by the way, if they do that, always listen to the Holy Spirit over what I'm telling you in any situation in life. But if you're specifically convicted, then do it. If you're not, then don't. And here's something else, and a pastor's telling you this, don't feel bad about it for the rest of the day either, knowing that you could have done more harm than good. Give to this church or a local mission or some sort of program that has time and resources to get into the problem and fix it, not to just give a handout that oftentimes hurts more than it helps. So I want to tell you, about a ministry that I think is doing a great job of this. Do you see how I did that? <laughs> Anytime I'm up here, I'm gonna tell you about the Shift Garage. The Shift Garage is awesome. I'm a little bit biased, but not that much. Um, we help people that can't afford their full car repair bill. We take in donated cars, fix them up, give them to single moms, low-income families like that. And because of all the things that I've told you this morning, which is a lot of it we learned over this last year, when you start a car ministry at a church, there's not a book on that. So a lot of what you do, you hit this guardrail and then you hit this guardrail and you kind of aim back to where you're supposed to go. It's kind of all an experiment. But because what I'm telling you this morning is what we found, what's true, we're turning our whole process on its head. So what we've been doing is kind of paying for everything. We find out if a person needs help. That's what we've been focusing on, making sure that they need help. They're in need. They're not going to get out of this on their own. And... Help is going to change something. In six months, something will be different. They will have a job. They won't be living at mom's place anymore. Something will be different because we help them. We have been focusing on that. What we've been wrong, doing wrong then is paying for all the parts and doing everything for them from that point on. What we do now is that we share that cost with them because at the end of the day, they own a vehicle. Some of the responsibility needs to be on them. We don't want to rob them of that fullness in their spirit of their dignity. So we've changed that. There's two parts to helping people in need. The first is relief. The second is development. Relief is stopping the bleeding. Relief is fixing the car. But what are we doing for development? Well, we started 
budgeting and car maintenance classes last year. So now every owner of a repaired vehicle is required to attend and they learn basic budgeting skills. They learn what is this supposed to cost in Rapid City and what are you paying? Where, where are the inconsistencies? Why do we have an issue here? And they learn basic car maintenance. They're not gonna know how to change an engine out, but they're gonna know how to check their oil and their antifreeze and make sure that they got the basics covered. We're doing that now. I wanna make sure you know so I'll share this story about myself. A few months ago, when we were still doing things kind of the wrong way, I was frustrated because not enough people had signed up for the classes. I knew how many people we'd helped, and I knew how many people signed up for the classes, and I saw a big gap there, and I wasn't happy about it. Well, it turns out we were incentivizing them incorrectly. We have fixed that, and I don't expect to have that problem again. But I was not happy. We were in the main part of the shift garage where the cars are, where the wrenches are. We were where the work happens. And I was walking around. I had some volunteers in there with me. And I pointed to some of the cars and I said, you know, I love working on these cars. It's why I started doing this. It's what drew me to a car ministry because I love working on vehicles. But in 10 years, they're going to be little cubes of metal like this that are getting melted down. I mean, they need fixed today. I said, this one... This lady lives in the middle of nowhere. She can't get to the store without this car. She can't go anywhere. This car, this is a single mom. She's got to drive her kids to school because of where she lives, and she's got one that has a medical condition. She's got to go to Minnesota every once in a while, and this car is not ready to make the trip. We've got to fix these cars. It's an important part of what we do. But long after those cars are melted down, the sustainable difference we will have made is with the classes. It is my hope, and I don't want to come across as insensitive here, it's my hope that I don't see these cars again. And the reason is because next time something happens to it, I want them to be able to handle it on their own. I want to have given them the tools they need to deal with that next time. And I think that's going to be the difference. That's the lasting thing that we do. Well, I want to show you a quick video of one of our car recipients, somebody that got a free car from us last year. This is a very rare look inside this side of things. And I say that because we've never captured this before. And the reason is when we were doing things the wrong way, oftentimes people were a little embarrassed to be on video saying that they were getting a car, that they were in that situation. I think it's a good indicator of our progress that Jessica was willing to share with us because now we've retained her dignity and kept that and we really do feel that way about her and we want to see the best for her. So let's watch this video. A little over a year ago, I made the decision to leave an abusive relationship. And that was the very beginning of a very hard, long road. During that time, a title loan was put out on my vehicle and my vehicle was repossessed. I am back in South Dakota from Nevada, um, living with my parents and my four children, trying to get myself up on my feet, having a very hard time finding a job um, because I don't have a vehicle, and finding a place to live on my own because I don't have a job to get to, you know, to make my money. I was beginning to lose faith. With so many things that have gone wrong in this past year, it's been hard. And my mom just kept telling me that God answers our prayers on his own time and sometimes they're not the answers that we want, but he answers them regardless. And I'm seeing that now. 
I have a job lined up. I'm gonna get started soon. I'm really excited getting a vehicle because of prayer that I honestly thought was unheard. Well, I won't have to rely on other people to get back and forth, so I won't have to sit around and wait, um, and be late, <laughs> um, be able to get to work to support my family, make the money that I need so I can get out on my own, just give me the independence that I need to be able to support my family, to support my kids. That's what it's going to do. It's going to do just a little bit, but that little bit's going to take me so far 